HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The future of farms is the future of food. No Farms, No Future is a new podcast from American Farmland Trust and Heritage Radio Network. Listen today. You're listening to Season 2 of Fields, the podcast, with Melissa Metric, Wythe Marshall, and Allie Whist. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice, to feed the hungry, to green the city, or to uncover its history. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow food, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming and urban environments. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements, examining each in turn. Thank you so much for listening. Today, we're having a little host convo. I'm Wythe Marshall. And I'm Allie Wist. And we're here today to talk about Cytopia, or Cytopia? I like Cytopia. I like Cytopia. I'm going to say that. (laughs) Here's the thing. I need you to explain this term to me. I know what a utopia is. But what is a cytopia? Sure. Uh, so I encountered this in my research um, because London architect Carolyn Steele coined this term in her tw- uh, 2008 book, Hungry City. Um, and it means food place from the Greek cytos or food plus topos or place. So mm. whereas utopia is a perfect no place that can never exist, a cytopia is a place organized by food, by, organized around food. Oh, and so it could be anywhere, but the reigning principle is that it has to do with farming or food in some way. Yeah. I mean, Steele argues that we live in a kind of bad cytopia. So (laughs) our whole political economy is organized around, you know, essentially subsidizing uh, food that is bad. So it's cheap and we don't value food and food production and land stewardship in a way that is uh, sustainable in the long term. Uh, But we Mm. could live in a good one. We could organize society differently. And and that we, you know, could be debated for sure. But living in New York City, um, I could definitely look around and say, okay, yeah, there's a lot of cheap junk food. And I don't see a lot of, uh, you know, farms every day, even though I, you know, research this stuff. Um, So I use the term cytopia to describe uh, all kinds of projects, but often thinking about ecological design projects, speculative projects um, that are about transforming living and non-living landscapes together, uh, revolving around food. So some aspect Mm. of like, okay, we're going to have a better town because we're going to have farms in it or next to it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Gotcha. So yeah, the utopia part comes in 
one's food is incorporated in a way that betters society and the community, ideally. Well, and it's just perpendicular, too, because I think this whole idea of utopia is that you could never really get there. And Mm. it's organized around something that is unlikely for all of society to adopt. So everyone becomes, um, you know, really rational and temperate. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, there's a kind of real politic to cytopia, which is, okay, you have to, everyone eats food. So you are in a way organizing your society around food production, um, unless you are trying to starve yourselves. Um, and in in that case, you know, are you doing it in a way that's sustainable in the long term? Are you valuing land or is the goal, you know, just like lots of cheap crap? Um, yeah, well, I kind of love that it has a material reality to it that a lot of utopic utopian projects, really don't. There's a literal groundedness to it because it has to do with growing things. Um, And I'm realizing that I have been inadvertently on a months-long quest to find Cytopias, um, you know, May through July of 2021. As you know, I was on the road and I was really specifically looking for kind of strange built environments where philosophers, usually men, um, were building pseudo-utopian communities And they're almost always problematic, but they teach us something about our values and our relationship to the environment, right? And of course, I was really curious how food played a role and how farming happened in these various built or enclosed experimental places. Yeah, uh, it's really amazing that you went on this journey. And uh, I remember talking to you a little about it and some of the places you want to go. There's some of the places I wanted to visit. I was lucky enough in the past to go to like conferences, for example, at Biosphere 2. So I think you're going to mention um, some of the the sites you (laughs) saw, some of the people you interviewed. But uh, but yeah, that sparked this conversation. So today, as I understand it, we're going to talk a little about, um, you know, essentially futuristic and yeah, to some degree, okay, utopian designs for living with uh, food production and living with, um, you know, farms basically in some sort of futuristic or, or communal way that, that is different from how you might think, you know, uh, most of, let's say, the U.S. is currently organized. Right, right, because most of us do not have farming incorporated into our daily life in any way. Um, but I'm, it's not, I think, um, it's not a totally obtuse idea in American history to think through food and farming as part of city design or as part of living as a sort of positive trajectory for communities. And I'm kind of curious if you know from your research of any kind of precedence for this. Uh, there's so many. And <laughs> the, the big one that um, I think always comes up is Ebenezer Howard's Garden Cities of Tomorrow. So just oh. around the turn of the century, the sort of uh, British and American utopian um, city planner really uh, wrote a book that was very convincing to, uh, you know, maybe sort of a a cult following, but about better ways to organize cities uh, at scale so that they would be large enough to enjoy sort of economies of scale, but also Mm -hmm. small enough where you could have essentially farms right there and all kinds of farms for specific reasons. So farms for different kinds of people um, who might enjoy you know, working outside farms for kids, essentially, um, farms for kids and kind of building it all together in these little circular, you'd have these beautiful pink and green diagrams showing how Mm -hmm. the, where the rail lines would go. So it's all very efficient. It's meant to be modern. I mean, again, this is like, say 1900 ish, uh, progressive in, in that era. Um, and, and, and sort of sort of a socialist, sort of affiliated with socialists. But it, the scheme was actually practical enough that there were garden cities built. So this had this long legacy, um, this kind of 
minoritarian legacy within urban planning of like, yeah, maybe you should have farms in your urban planning and not just assume, yeah, they're somewhere else. They're run by big companies. They're very large units in rural areas, but actually bring them into sort of um, city design. Um, if you skip forward a, a couple decades, you definitely get some other really big name architects who've talked about farming. And I was surprised to learn this stuff in my research. So like you might know Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh, <laughs> a little bit. Might have heard that name. I mean, he had this whole crazy libertarian vision for farming called a Broad Acre City where everyone would mm. get sort of an acre plot, everyone in the United States. Um, and you'd also get a little helicopter. And you oh my would gosh, be able- wait, everyone gets a helicopter? Everyone, I'm sold. <laughs> although, yeah, who counts as everyone? I mean, I, you know, I, right. I think this, this gets into all of these questions of yeah. utopia and who gets to participate in these visions. So this is very different from Garden Cities in that it's, of course, unrealizable. But it's, it's crazy. In 1932, he had this vision for trapping up the United States into lots of small unit farms. Hmm. And this is very much the Jeffersonian or a pastoral ideal, which yeah. is very much tied to sort of, you know, white settler society. Uh, and it is a certain vein of utopian thought for, for certain people, right? But yeah. I think um, just to know that Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright wrote basically this whole speculative book, you know, drew all these designs for how this would work. And then it was tied to very then cutting ideas like um, – uh, uh, you know, aircraft that could sort of take up uh, off and stop very easily. So you could go visit your friends anywhere. So you wouldn't need uh, roads kind of marring this landscape, which is oh, wow. very different, right, from Ebenezer Howard and from our lived experience of like transportation networks. Yeah. Um, the furthest you go vertically is just in layered highways. That's about as far as we got <laughs> with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's really fascinating this um, antithesis to factory farming, which only escalated wildly in scale since that time. Um, and yeah, now we live in a society where farming really does mirror manufacturing more than it mirrors, you know, traditional pastoral ideals of farming. Yeah. And where you really have to specify what you mean by farming and even in, in various kinds of studies of agriculture within the industry, like when people say traditional, they usually mean, you know, chemical, you know, and fairly intensive yeah. monocrop farming, whereas traditional meaning like tied to you know, centuries ago techniques that, um, that work without a lot of synthetic chemicals, petrol derived chemicals, um, you know, would, would be considered essentially just small farming, right? Or right. maybe organic <laughs> would get thrown around. There's lots of debates around these terms, but yeah. So if, if you look at utopian architects and city planners, um, you know, similarly, they're struggling with, uh, those changes you're, you're mentioning and saying, well, how does farming fit in if I sort of step back from the city? Um, so another major name that you may know is, uh, Le Corbusier. Oh yeah, of course. And uh, along with Radiant City, which was developed, I think, starting in 1930, gets published in 1935. Um, he also worked, um, with essentially a French farmer and, 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 and thought about another plan called Radiant Farm. Oh, wow. I've never heard of this Radiant Farm. Yeah, the Radiant Farm. So there's, a, 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 you know, forgive my, mon français, but uh, there's a <laughs> ville radius and a femme radius. There's wow. the Radiant Farm. Uh, and, you know, historian of architecture, uh, Michelle Miller-Fisher, points out that some young Californian architects actually almost immediately sort of picked up on his Radiant Farm concept from what they could read um, mm. and used it to actually plan some farm securities administration um, you know, developments between 1936 and 1941. So this is during the depression, right? Leading into World War II, there were people reading Lake UBCA and thinking this guy knows a thing or two about designing um, sort of farm communities and integrating them into cities Hmm. and thinking of the two together, which... I know for myself, I don't think of Corbusier as particularly um, a non-city kind of guy. I think about him as like, yeah, really right. big buildings, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, the built environment really meant something particular that I never envisioned incorporating farming or plants. <laughs> yeah. And so you have utopian in thought um, through the mid-century 
and certainly into the era of like golden age, quote unquote, science fiction mm. that is looking at farming. But I think to me, it always is this minor note, except in these brief instances. So again, right. in the 70s, NASA hires some really amazing speculative artists to draw these sort of space colonies. That's what they call them. Again, Oh, I've seen these. They're beautiful, they're beautiful. like... Um, not really psychedelic colors, but just so rich and bold with these sweeping uh, tunnel-shaped sort of spacecraft that would house, you know, acres and acres of agriculture, just totally pastoral, but in space. And what's amazing is, um, you know, they're just, they're, they're really highlight how food production is so important and how, in a way, whatever society you're in does revolve around reproducing mm-hmm. food so that we can reproduce our bodies. Right. Yeah. And, uh, when you flash forward to, to this imagined 2100 and they have these <laughs> ring colonies at Lagrange points around the solar system, um, you would need actually such a large percentage of the, of those interiors, right. these donut shaped metal and glass kind of tubes in, in the sky. Right. Um, a lot of it would just have to be farmland. Right. And you'd have to figure out, or again, you'd build cities around kind of within that. Um, mm-hmm. and it'd be very different. You know, the sky is going to curve up. Right. So it looks very different than yeah. a farm in, uh, upstate New York or the Midwest or wherever, <laughs> but it was still something that, um, these, these writers and artists, uh, I, I believe that we all kind of met in Princeton around 1970, 1971 were, um, thinking through and, uh, you know, there's something about those images that's so striking. Um, and there are equivalents that the Soviets worked on, but I, but I think there's something about, yeah, those few big NASA images of those, space yeah. colonies, quote unquote, that word, right. is like right there. <laughs> there's yeah. a big, there's a, it's a big farm. There's a little few people and, and it's meant to be, you know, again, it's meant to be right. utopia, but of course it is a cytopia. It's, it's organizing the the good life in the void, right. Uh, where you're losing, you know, bone density and all that, whatever, but My it's organized around food. Yeah. And there's really such a strong trend of how do we sort of offshore agriculture in a way in order to preserve urban living as the ideal. And then, of course, you have the dark side of that Coruscant on from Star Wars is the ecumenopolist that is in front of me doesn't know what ecumenopolis is a a world or a planet that's completely covered in city, its only city. Um, And in order to sustain that, you would have to have just massive agricultural colonies floating, you know, in orbit. And um, yeah, so again, it's where is that labor? Who is that labor? You know, we can fantasize about having food grown in space, but oftentimes the real lived experience of it was kind of not thought through. I mean, and in a similar way, I think the cytopias that we can look at that sort of bubble up in American landscapes also required some sort of erasure of the indigenous use of land and treating land as sort of a blank slate. Um, and it's funny you brought up Frank Lloyd Wright because the first cytopia I want to talk about uh, was built by a defector <laughs> of Frank Lloyd Wright, actually. Um, and so his name was Paulo Soleri, and he went to Taliesin West in Phoenix to work for Frank Lloyd Wright. And the problem was that he absolutely detested suburban sprawl, and Frank Lloyd Wright glorified the single-family home. So they did not get along. It's unclear if he was kicked out or he left. Ah. Um, And so he went about an hour and a half north of Phoenix and built Arcosanti. Um, and so I had the pleasure of staying at Arcosanti, actually. Um, and this is a sort of concrete complex that is the 
physical manifestation of Soleri's philosophy. And his philosophy was based on what he called arcology. And he claims to have coined that term. Maybe we could debate that. Um, but the marriage of architecture and ecology to live in harmony um, in the Arizona desert. And he just, you know, his hatred for the single family home as something he thought was wildly resource intensive. I think he called it the most consumptive form of living on the planet. <laughs> um, caused him to really become obsessed with this idea of miniaturizing or consolidating living um, and consolidating living, farming, eating, working um, in a sort of urban structure, but one that was intentional and could be built anywhere. Um, and so, you know, his drawings really read like a space age, multi-layered, enclosed world. Um, and he hoped this would eventually be a model for dwelling uh, around the world, an anecdote to suburban sprawl. And he meant this to house about 5,000 people, actually, initially. And I have a clip from Catherine Wilson, who works for um, Arco Santi, who explains a little bit about oh, his cool. vision. Well, before you play the clip, um, so you actually went there and you saw this place today, right? Yeah. So you'll tell us a little after the clip about kind of what's what's going on. Yeah. Are 5,000 people there? Are they farming <laughs> indoors in the desert? Um, I feel like I'm you so would excited. have heard of that if that would happen, but I I'll, can leave you hanging on that one. Spoiler. Yeah. Okay. Let's hear what, uh, what Catherine Wilson has to say. Sprawls built down and out, so taking over land, resources, energy, while the arcology builds in and up. There's implosion happening. There's a miniaturization of resources. Everything's walkable, three-dimensional. So what she means by the miniaturization is this idea of compressing all of the aspects of living, eating, working, socializing into that kind of three-dimensional space, as opposed to just building outward into empty land. Remember, Soleri was an Italian designer, so part of this is inspired by old Italian towns that were built before cars, very unlike American cities like Phoenix in the Southwest. He wanted to design around people as opposed to automobiles. So Paolo designed arcologies for all different landscapes and biomes, underwater, in outer space, um, on bridges, on dams. Um, and this one's particularly the high desert mesa. So across the board for all those arcologies, there were three things that they all had in common. One was this idea of bounded architecture. So that means that you just build within a certain area. So instead of sprawl, um, it's just within one zone. So uh, here we own 860 acres, and we lease an additional 3,000 acres from the government, but we'll only ever build on a 20 to 60-acre plot. The apex of Arcosani is 5,000 people, so you can imagine that many people living in such a small space is very dense. The other one is um, utilizing passive lighting, heating, and cooling. So our energy consumption is lower. So just based on the way the structures are designed, um, the, sh the shapes of the structures, the materials used, the natural elements like the position of the sun or uh, the patterns of the wind, they are intended to light, heat, and cool themselves. So, yeah, uh, let's just say it never reached the full version. <laughs> she explains a little bit about this vision and that he had these designs in all kinds of biomes. And Arcosanti was just the desert biome that he chose to start with. It currently houses 70 permanent residents. Um, and it's a really beautiful complex of concrete buildings that feel straight out of, again, my second Star Wars rep of the day. Wow, this is getting very nerdy very fast. 
uh, but really looks like something on Tatooine or something out of Dune. <laughs> well, and Star Wars was pretty much based on Dune, so that you yeah. can also count them as Dune references. Um, no, that, that's that's really interesting. I mean, it, it definitely has that utopian idea that um, you could just pick up humans and drop them anywhere, and they're going to have this enclosed bubble in which they will be comfortable and have what they need. Um, and of course, here, Slayer is really interested in reducing um, waste and, and using as few resources as needed to kind of keep people around, which is very much like what NASA has to do, right? Mm. With very limited resources once you're out in space, because each gram that you transport up costs just a ton of fuel and it's a mess. Um, so in some ways that that's similar. What occurs to me is it, it is pretty utopian to think you could do that anywhere. Um, but where does the food and farming come in? How is this cytopian? So how did, how did mm. our, the arcology principle get oriented around food production? Yeah. So, so Larry's vision was that there would be farming incorporated in this sprawling city and it would actually be vertical farming. I mean, hydroponics wasn't really a thing, but he does have all these drawings where uh, sort of agrarian activities are happening in that urban structure through greenhouses. Um, and there'd be layers of activity of all kinds of goods and services, farming being one of them. Um, and they had some more agricultural activity through the 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, it sort of stopped for a while and Soleri actually passed away. Um, and he also, there's been a lot of turmoil at Arcosanti itself because um, Solari's daughter, Daniela, um, came out with an article published on Medium detailing some pretty horrific sexual abuse allegations. Um, and so I think Arcosanti took a long, hard look at their values and their yeah. goals. Um, and they are restarting an agricultural program. They have a greenhouse um, they do have a, a little bit of indoor farming, some hydroponic operations for their cafe. But I asked David Tolas, who runs the agricultural initiatives at Arco Santi, how food and farming there is similar to that of a real city. So David has started a kind of nonprofit within Arco Santi that will focus on, among other things, growing and farming education. And I asked him, you know, you're seeing so much more agriculture kind of pop up in cities, everything from growing underground to on top of high rises to floating food forests on barges. But what if it's intentional? What if the architecture of a city's structure is actually more similar to farming than we might imagine? And what if it's all incorporated in a relationship from the beginning? That's really what was what is going on here. We're talking about how the natural environment out there inter, interacts with the, all the people here, and where's where's the boundary, mm -hmm. right? So with food, it's it's kind of the, the same. You're you're interacting with this natural environment, and there's a lot of issues around that, like you know having people learn where food comes from and how it gets to where it has to go and you know what kind of kind of environment it needs to to grow and survive and then you know that's the the little picture is what kind of soil you got and the water and the temperature all those things you know and with architecture it's the same you mm -hmm. have to create the space for people and you've got to protect them because it's you know you have to make sure what you build is going to protect people and so with plants it's the same thing you know you get these seedlings you put them out there and like oh man if, if it freezes they they die and so 
You have to build spaces to take care of the plants too. Right. Yeah. 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 And also, like, growing food and growing plants is another means of taking care of the people in the architecture too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Getting and and then the the uh, issue of having people know where their food comes from. Mm-hmm. Just that, and it's not just ordering online, have Amazon deliver a box from Walmart. There's a huge amount of people that, that do that, which is, you know, if it serves a, a need, can't, you know. But here, if if you have this group of 70 or 80 people, how can you, you know, get growing food, put it on their radar? Yeah, get them involved. Spend a couple hours a week coming and weeding or just seeing, oh, here's where that basil comes from. And, oh, you have to prune the flowers you know when it gets too hot and mm-hmm. and water it and, and if you can get people just for even an hour a week to see that it may, that's enough yeah so you can kind of hear that as it plays out now he arcosanti has sort of pivoted towards this idea of education and proximity to growing food as a part of understanding ecology and a way to carry out sort of Solari's philosophical um, values through having people participate growing basil. (laughs) Right. So instead of like a parallel society within uh, the political economy of global capitalism, where you have this kind of self-sustaining bubble in the desert that doesn't need much, it just needs a little water, whatever, some Mm -hmm. outside resources, surely, but it's kind of self-sustaining and intentional um, which is a, is a cool vision and very utopian, it sounds like, right? In reality, there have been some struggles um, and, and certainly, uh, you know, some, some sort of internal political, uh, some very real struggles. But at the end of the day, right, it's like more of an intentional, um, like more of a commune or retreat. And so farming or gardening is like a, a part of that because it's kind of meditative practice, but it's, mm. it's more therapeutic. It's not sort of like, these are all the plants that we're going to eat necessarily. Is that, right. is that correct? Exactly. So there's still certainly not providing their caloric intake through what they're growing at Arcosanti. And it does become, yeah, more of that kind of retreat uh, experience of growing and eating. And I think they'd like to expand it, but, um, you know, it's just a matter of how much, how practical it is, I think, for that space and also that climate. Um, You know, I think Tolis was... You know, he really sees the farming as um, a way to carry out Solari's obsession with um, the broken ties between ecology, agriculture and people and a way to repair the separation of people in urban centers from farms. But what Solari was going for was never really going to be this utopia. Repairing those ties was still a project for a limited set of people and a limited kind of people. And like I said, it's not actually providing the caloric intake. But to me, what stands out right away is it doesn't consider the history of land stewardship, Native American presence, or even local communities and their access to food. I mean, Tolas told me that, um, you know, they were in conversation with farmers in the area and folks who might want to farm and that they were thinking about something that sounded to me a lot like a food hub, like if they could start growing. It's you know, they're literally in the desert. It's experiencing desertification, but it's also a food desert. Like the local community really only has a Love's Travel Center and a Dollar General. There isn't fresh produce. 
So he was aware that in order to make this actually meaningful, there had to be that broader engagement with the community. It can't be isolated sure. and cut off. But it sounds like a big opportunity at a small scale um, to actually maybe do some of the things Larry was interested in. Um, and yeah, use this intensive, intentional community uh, and interesting, you know, mini city built environment to grow a bunch of food to help people who really need it, um, including probably whoever's living there. But yeah, I mean, I, I feel like um, maybe that's part of the problem of retreat from mid-century. So mm-hmm. classic examples would be like, you know, quote unquote, hippie communes is, is this idea you could sort of cut yourself off or escape from the larger political economy and not um, not fight it or change it. But in actuality, I mean, for, you know, the, the idea is many of these people um, could not sort of leave entirely uh, and many left very briefly only and then sort of return. And so I think you could see something over time happening with sites like Arcasanti, where um, they're meant to be apart from the problems of global capitalism. But as you say, they sort of, in many ways, just ignore some of the problems. And yeah, right. definitely indigenous land rights, uh, you know, in my mind, yeah, who who should sort of be living there and, and how much interest is there at Arcasanti um, to sort of bringing in indigenous people um, and, and yeah, like working together to steward the land. So I think that's that's really a great question to ask. And, uh, and, and it's an interesting you know, small but beautiful um, physical site to kind of mm. consider thinking about the future of cities. And yeah, uh, just the fact he put it in a desert well before I think most people were thinking too much about climate disruption also sort of highlights that. So it just is a sort of monument in a weird way to some of these mid-century um, utopian architects. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting place. Right. And like Catherine Wilson pointed out, the original design used architectural forms to encourage passive heating and cooling. Mm. You know, the areas of the complex would fill with light in the winter and shade in the summer. Um, but that's when the highs in the area were only in the 90s. Like when I was there, it was going to hit 120. So wow. the climate, so climate change necessarily interrupts, you know, any version of continued sustainability here. But in that way, it also is an opportunity. I think the people that are really thinking through this space as a, a laboratory for considering how people can live more sustainably. And now they happen to be in kind of the front lines of the climate crisis being in an arid area. I mean, Phoenix is wildly consumptive of water in a way yeah. that's not sustainable. Um, and they end up being in a kind of perfect site to consider what it means to be living in a desert and trying to eat, et cetera. <laughs> well, and just for water retention and managing thermoclines, the difference between inside and outside, this really brings up another, you know, one of probably my favorite mega speculative architecture projects from mid-century, which was, uh, you know, another name you might have heard, Buckminster Fuller. <laughs> In the of 60s, course. he proposed, uh, he really wanted the government to build a giant glass dome over midtown Manhattan because oh it would save so much on snow removal and on uh, sort of heating and cooling. Um, and many people pointed out that, it, you know, the project cost at the time would have been, you know, billions. Today it would be trillions. But <laughs> his point was it would have saved that, you know, it would, it would pay for itself over time. It would just oh be goodness. a big capital expenditure. But, hey, the U.S. Army could do this. It would be really cool. And, and that's definitely, to me, when I hear arcology, that's what I think of these science fictional scenarios where nature is so dangerous. Um, it's so degraded by humans mm. that we, we have to bubble it off mm-hmm. with some hardened, uh, clear, you know, superstructure. Uh, and it's very science fictional, but I, I do think that at the time, um, people like Solari and Fuller obviously were saying, no, 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 this is great. And they were using the term in a, in a different way. Yeah. Um, but nowadays, all I, you know, when I, when I think about um, air quality index being poor in New York City, I'm like, 
oh yeah, that's, that's <laughs> this, real. the arcology is coming and it's not, uh, and it was never going to benefit everyone. It was never going to yeah. be sort of like, uh, um, uh, socially good necessarily. Uh, but at least Fuller, um, was himself pretty, pretty progressive dude. Uh, whereas nowadays, yeah, I worry about sort of, um, the various corporate equivalents that, you know, if you're leasing air from Amazon or whatever, not to get too uh, yeah. <laughs> dystopian, but um, yeah, just, just all these projects, they're, they're so evocative because they, they sort of predict things that would come to pass in a way, not, not that that yeah. was their intention, but. But it's this idea of being able to escape the detritus of human civilization or bubble it off, I think is really compelling to think about right now because we've learned that we can't escape it. There's plastic everywhere and climate change affects everywhere, you know, and I think, after Rachel Carson, we had this idea that we can just get rid of the chemicals or move away from them. And a lot of these utopian projects were to try to escape the pollution and go set up camps somewhere pristine, right? right. And actually, Jedediah Purdy writes about this in his amazing book, After Nature. Um, you know, and he says, in the ecological imagination, unspoiled nature was as inspiring as any romantic landscape and reassuring and harmonious as a kind of ecological pastoral because the danger from toxic pollution that traveled ac across ecological systems could be escaped. You know, the poisonous fruit of humanity's disconnection from nature um, could be repaired. And I think we all know how false that notion is now living in the Anthropocene. Yeah, and, that, and to not be intentional, which most planning is not, and, and there isn't really you know, t to use a term of art in, in my little world, you know, public-private partnerships even, just ideas that different quote-unquote sectors to so the government and corporations could agree on some stuff and set some sort of standards. I mean, this is like mind-blowing stuff to, to think about, much mm -hmm. less these kind of um, essentially socialist utopias of mid-century where people have more equitable ways of sharing resources. But again, this who are the people? And often in, in the imaginary, it's still kind of carving out, you know, this bubble for essentially white folks from the coast who are moving to the <laughs> desert, right? But I, I just wanted to call to mind, um, there's a, a historian, uh, Tracy Bryn Voiles, who uses this, this great term, waste landing, to talk about, mm. you know, the ways in which um, industrial capitalism creates wastelands. I mean, it's always creating sort of hinterlands. Um, there are active agents. There are generally, you know, majority white-owned large companies that are mm. mining and creating problems due to mining. They are creating, you know, petrol products and problems due to petrol products. So this feeds into climate disruption, but also acute environmental, um, you know, poisons, essentially. Um, and and you could see this even at the level of, of inside the city. There's enclaves and there's, there's people who want to escape a quote-unquote bad neighborhood. There's problems of gentrification. Mm -hmm. And even within the interior of a building, I think about, like, historian Michelle Murphy's book on sick building syndrome and this idea that, like, the insides of our buildings also have pollutants that we ourselves, you know, <laughs> people who, who benefit from, you know, industrial modernity um, have right. kind of said, okay, yeah, I'll live with this carcinogen for 70 years or whatever, because it's going to be a rad seven years. Uh, and, you know, I, I think there is this problem of um, no one has planned this whole system and it, it has degraded so much so quickly in, in, in historical terms, mm. you know, in a hundred years or whatever, it's, it's kind of taken apart whole landscapes. So I can definitely understand that urge to want to say, no, 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 I want to find the retreat. Where is mm. that pristine place um, that, that, yeah, yeah, pretty points out there is this imaginary of a kind of um, good place somewhere that I could go uh, um, move to. And I feel like, you know, we were, we were just talking about this, where yeah. would we move, you know, before we started taping. Yeah. Um, I know, and, and even during COVID, I think everyone moving to upstate New York, um, mm. out of New York City, and I think this happened in a lot of cities around the country, of this mentality of escape, in that case, trying to escape a virus that was impacting densely populated places, but that notion of escaping to the safer, more harmonious 
area is definitely um, something that we fall prey to again and again. And yeah, like the sort of microbial transference of pollutants, everything we put back out in the atmosphere is now, we know, being absorbed by our body and in so many ways. It's going back and forth. And there really isn't, our skin barrier is not, itself is not a protectant. We also can't go build domes in the desert that are protectants. Right. <laughs> right. And I think so to, to, so to bring it back to Cytopia, I mean, just that idea of um, how could you design some kind of solution that is replicable, as you, you've told me about um, Arcasanti, it was meant to be just the first pilot version of kind of these arcologies that would pop up in different biomes and provide a kind of solution. So more intensive, um, but actually thus more environmentally sustainable and um, in some ways socially sustainable communal way of life uh, for people who would, would view this as a kind of um, new futurist, you know, mode of society that, that would be different from life either in, you know, New York or uh, the Midwest or South or, or wherever else, um, you know, presumably it, it would work outside of the United States, right? Um, and, and outside of Western Europe. And I, and I think um, this idea of how do we create solutions, how do we create replicable solutions that aren't sort of personal retreats, um, that's where we keep encountering food and farming, because if you do begin to take into account millions and millions of people, well, what are they going to eat and what are they going to eat as lands um, are increasingly, you know, uh, degraded by, by climate disruption, by, by all these different effects. Um, so I definitely think uh, there's something interesting uh, about specifically Arcasanti, but also maybe um, some of the other cytopias that you visited recently and wanted to talk about. Yeah, well, you know, this idea of trying to trying to create a cytopia that's replicable and where experimentation and research are kind of part of those utopian ideals and sort of baked into why we're here and why we're doing this for humanity to be reproduced elsewhere. Um, that really definitely relates to the goals of Biosphere 2, which is also in the Arizona desert. There's a trend here. Huh. Um, and I also was lucky to visit Biosphere 2 and um, got to talk to some folks there just about how it exists today. So if you haven't seen the documentary, watch it. Biosphere 2's original mission um, was to enclose a group of researchers, but many of them former artists and, um, and uh, performers, and enclose them in a closed ecological system for multiple years to live in harmony with a completely artificial earth system. The future of farming in America is uncertain. Our farmers are aging and selling off their land. But the pandemic has revealed the importance of local farms as the national and international supply chain continues to be disrupted. I mean, it's not like most farmers have a company-sponsored retirement plan. I'm Hannah Forden, HRN's program manager, and I want to tell you about a new show. Hosted by John Piotti, the president and CEO of American Farmland Trust, and produced in collaboration with Heritage Radio Network, this is No Farms, No Future. There is a new generation of small farmers. We're here to tell their stories, share knowledge, and dig deep into the future of American farming. From land stewardship, we are losing 2,000 acres of farmland a day. The price of land is often so high that it's really hard to get started. To cracks in the supply chain. By the time I go shopping every single day, there's no meat left to feed my family. The future of farms is the future of food. 
Subscribe to No Farms, No Future, a new podcast from American Farmland Trust and Heritage Radio Network. Find us wherever you like to listen. So it's called Biosphere 2 because Biosphere 1 is planet Earth, what we're on right now. And they were literally trying to recreate a new one under a series of elaborate glass domes. And one of those giant glass domes was a farm. It was a plot of agricultural land under glass that was farmed by the original Biospherian crew. I think there were about seven of them. It was built between 87 and 91. Um, And yeah, a crew of Biospherians lived lived inside of it, the first closed mission, from September of 1991 to 1993. So for two years, people actually lived in here. Yeah, yeah. And it it did, um, as I recall, they had to stop living in there because there were some unexpected, essentially flaws in the system. But in some ways, I think those get exaggerated in some of the retellings. And if you go there, especially today, it's still full of plants and it's still used for research. Um, So the University of Arizona, I think formerly Columbia University was involved. I mean, there's there's still, you know, a lot of scientists doing interesting work there uh, that relates directly to, you know, climate disruption and and our, our future. Um, and I think in some ways it's a testament to the fact that, you know, it, it isn't true that everything died or it was a complete failure. <laughs> it, it wasn't necessarily a way that you wanted people to live um, forever of that original cohort or that their personal aims, you know, had shifted. But I think there's something interesting that uh, to, to consider in uh, in retelling this very excessive um, utopian place as as really um, successful along this, this line of inquiry as, as kind of private uh, lab, uh, which, you know, it, it just... If you read a lot of the history with like NASA and similar programs in, in Russia and elsewhere, um, there were lots of experiments where people were essentially kept in sort of a cave or a room <laughs> and had to do various things. And this was meant to test and simulate and blah, 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 experiment with, you know, essentially yeah. life in outer space, right? But the idea of doing uh, doing this not for that reason, but to understand Earth itself better um, does, I think, set Biosphere 2 apart. Also, the scale of it, it is extravagant. It is, it is gigantic. So well, and they did have some space fantasies at the at the outset they did i mean what they put out to the media was this is an earth science experiment this is they wanted funding and they kind of maybe overdid it and then you know the new york post dug up all these facts about oh this artist ran a cult in santa fe and they're all just performing artists and this is a scam and it was really scandalous because they wanted to present this as like an earth science experiment and the other kind of aspect to it was that they really did kind of want to test the viability for living on Mars. Like that was part of their goal uh, well before I think there was any, I mean, and back then that really seemed like a crazy fantasy, you know? Um, and they were kind of trying to test out human life in outer space, but I would say the actual research they did and what they've done since then has been much more about understanding Earth's incredibly complex ecosystems. And it actually remains the largest closed ecological system ever created. Yeah. And just to to give people who haven't been a sense, it's not like there's one domed like farm, like a greenhouse. It's like there's multiple giant domes that are interconnected with different biomes. So there's like a full tropical rainforest. <laughs> um, it's, it's much more akin to like an extravagant botanical garden, but the fact yeah. that it's not, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's on a yeah. mountain sort of 45 minutes, I think from Tucson, right? Yeah. which isn't itself necessarily the largest <laughs> city. So it's, it's not meant to be visited uh, by many people. And, and, you know, there's, there is something about all of it. it it's a product of, you know, um, 
American petrocracy. I mean, it's a, it's a product of someone having too much money. But for some reason, deciding those um, those desires would be you know really good things to 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 spend billions of dollars on. So as you said, um, understanding the Earth. But but sure, yes. Also, this fantasy of, of life in outer space, which I do think um, all of these ideas of separateness or retreat tend toward eventually. Because uh, as the entire Earth globally gets more and more sort of screwed up, mm. um, there's this fantasy of, okay, maybe there's just another one or I'll build another one out there somewhere. Uh, and, and at the same time, it goes from technically impossible in Ebenezer Howard's age, just a, a blink of an eye, you know, before our, our grandparents' time, essentially, um, to within the realm. I'm not, I'm not saying this is a good idea, but certainly people now are sort of looking at, oh, well, how, how would you get someone to Mars? How long could they stay there? What would it be like? Um, and just the fact that in a hundred years you can go from, you know, pure fantasy to like kind of there's people who are spending money on this means that, yeah, I think all of these systems uh, that, that are focused on retreat and kind of doming off um, <laughs> forests and, and farms uh, are going to tend toward, you know, well, what if we did it somewhere that wasn't Earth at all? Um, right. And again, like you said, I mean, it's also creating this experiment for who? I mean, this was funded you know, the businessman and billionaire philanthropist Ed Bass um, took kindly to the artist who was the mastermind behind this and funded it with wild amounts of money. So it's not, and you know, now the University of Arizona runs it and there's other, but he's still funding it. And that's still where the money's coming from, from my understanding. I mean, there's not a lot of details. And so I think that's why they've pivoted so much to doing climate research and research on the oceans. to try to make it applicable to a broader sect of humanity, the group of us that occupy Biosphere 1. With that said, though, I want to give us a chance to go back and hear about that initial experimental farm, what it was like for those first Biospherians to be farmers and work to maintain this enclosed agricultural system in a faux earth. I spoke to John Adams. He's going to share with us a little bit about that initial agricultural land that they farmed <laughs> inside for two years. Oh, that's, I, I definitely want to hear this. My name is John Adams. I'm deputy director here at the University of Arizona's Biosphere 2. And I've really had the good fortune of working at this amazing facility for almost my entire career. So Biosphere 2 is a little over three acres in size. The agricultural biome, which they term the intensive agricultural biome, is about a half acre. They had banana plants, they had guava, they had papaya. Starfruit, you know, coffee growing in different areas, figs that they could periodically harvest. But that agricultural system, that half acre of space, and the four feet of soils that covered that space were dedicated to growing uh, all the crops that they could. And it's sort of got these three barrels or arches that create the overhead structure of it, the overhead structure of it. Um, you know, inside there, they set up a number of different planting zones or plots. And they tried, you know, a wide range of things is my understanding, but what really worked well or grew well were things like sweet potatoes and carrots. You know, onions did okay, some peppers did okay. You know, they even had some rice patties on the western side um, of it, but nothing I would say did so well um, that they were able to have sort of this great diversity in their diet. Uh, you know, several of the Biospherians, you know, they basically said that if they never see a sweet potato again, they will will not be heartbroken. <laughs> yeah, so they were definitely, there was an issue with um, calorie deficiency um, in Biosphere 2. So they had, 
enough nutrition, but they actually didn't have enough calories. So if you imagine the physical labor required to keep Earth's ecological systems running um, in a small group, it was a lot and they were working their asses off basically. And so they weren't actually able to produce enough calories for the amount of work that they were doing. And that was part of the issues with ending the mission early. There was also an oxygen issue um, but, you know, there were a lot of limit, real limitations. They had no cooking oil, no pantry staples. Um, and, you know, one of the original mission members kind of lays out the complexity that we take for granted um, just by saying, like, if you order a pizza, it takes 30 minutes to get to you. Um, even cooking a pizza is still only like three or four hours. But if you are literally growing the wheat and thrashing it and harvesting it and milling it and then raising a cow, milking it, processing its milk to cheese, like the amount of work they had to do for every meal was wild. Yeah, no. And it it underscores that for most of human history, most activities have been about reproducing, you know, the 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 bodies of the individuals in, in a given community. So, you know, that means either you're farming or you're hunting or foraging or some mix. Um, and only relatively recently, again, in a kind of the blink of an eye with all of these things that we could talk about, the, the Haber-Bosch process for sort of um, fixing atmospheric nitrogen into ammonia for fertilizer. I mean, these are oh, okay, new yeah. things that require, a lot of them essentially require um, industrial systems and the use of petroleum. And what it what they do with, at the end of the day, you could say, is is um, is change. Uh, you know, a lot of you know the work that goes into growing like a single calorie. But but there's lots of trade offs. One of which is is you know, okay, there's um, instead of lots of varied regional diets, there's kind of, the, for example, we talk about the mean American diet or the MAD diet in the, in the U.S., where you know a lot of people are eating essentially um, the same foods over and over, and they're very cheap. They're sort of subsidized, and they they aren't. Um, if you trace it back to the farm, you know, stewarding land in a way that's really going to work in the long term, frankly. Mm. Uh, and there's places where it's worse. There's places where it's better. But it, but on the whole, yeah, you could say like that labor, like cap- one thing capitalism does is break that apart. So we don't see sort of and, and this happened before you know, modern capitalism. But but it is really apparent today that, yeah, you can order anything. It'll just show up. Uber Eats. I mean, it's just magic. Yeah. Some comes true to worth whatever food in New York City. And that is not necessarily sustainable. Um, year round to have every single food cheap Absolutely. At, at the touch of your phone. I mean, it really doesn't make any sense when you, when, when you read <laughs> um, what Linda Lay, that original biosphere and you were, yeah. you were quoting what, what she wrote. I mean, yeah, like it is a lot of work to grow anything, plant yeah. animal that, that's edible, that's good for humans. And uh, the fact that we've made, that we've found all kinds of efficiencies as a species um, and then distribute them very unevenly, in, unevenly um, <laughs> d- doesn't mean I think that, that we should give up on, uh, um, seeking some kind of balance and, and trying to understand better uh, what that would be like. So obviously the, the goal of this is to come back to Cytopia. They're not trying to say everyone should grow their own wheat, right? That's right. not the point. But it was sort of part of the point for them, as I understand it, as artists and scientists to, to sort of go through that experience. Is that right? Yeah. And I think, again, it was this notion of could we live in an enclosed system you know, kind of an aside on Mars, maybe, Um, but also just to understand how the system worked. And I think to understand our impact on it, like when you're living in that biosphere, every little thing you do, the air they were breathing versus the farming they were doing versus um, taking care of the ocean, this all had an impact on the carbon levels in the air and the oxygen in the air. And they very 
in a very real way, because I think they had to pump oxygen back in at one point, saw how their every gesture impacted the ecosystem around them. And that is something we're all really familiar with now. But I think at that time, it was kind of a novel and really bold way <laughs> to illustrate that. Yeah. And it, it to me, it just highlights some of the problems that the idea of techno fixes um, on Earth. So we should talk, you know, let's finish up about climate, my suggestion, and then talk about space and this mm. whole fantasy of moving to Mars, which I think is so bonkers, but obviously lots of people <laughs> want to do it. Um, but, but I think, you know, if, on, on the Earth side, I think what it highlights when you're pointing out the yeah, eight people uh, or seven people breathing, um, it, it turns out the, the I think the cement, uh, the, the concrete absorbed too much oxygen and they just hadn't factored that in properly. They just didn't mm. understand exactly the rate at which that large volume, because we're talking again, a large space with a small number of humans at the end of the day, but lots of plants, small number of humans, and there's a lot of essentially man-made uh, rocks and they didn't understand how quickly it would absorb oxygen. And yeah, they needed to, mm. to bring more in. But they couldn't kind of keep another biosphere going in relatively, you could say, sort of tightly controlled conditions. So they do have a lot of plants and insects and whatnot, but not that many. Right. Whereas here, back here on Biosphere One, uh, <laughs> there are people proposing techno fixes. Yeah, if you do my carbon trading scheme, yeah. uh, oh, if you buy this this new lithium battery, you know, power car, oh, well, it'll all sort of sort itself out. It's this domino effect where actually at the end of the day, um, the market will work it out. We, if we all buy the right products, we all do enough greenwashing, then yeah. um, sort of everything is fine. And, 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 you know, the Amazon doesn't get cut down and the Seattle doesn't get cut down. And it's, it's nonsense. It's like, mm -hmm. guys, if eight people almost stopped being able to breathe after just two years or whatever, uh, you know, and, and not to say that that, that experiment anecdotally stands in for, for all aspects of climate disruption, <laughs> but I think it just points to the complexity of these issues and that you can't solve them. They're, they're really hard to model and they're really hard to solve with single yeah. interventions. We're talking about wicked problems, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's why when they stripped the sort of agricultural dome and reimagined it, not for people trying to sustain life in there, but for research, they put in these huge platforms that are just soil. That's it. It's soil and it's water. And all they are looking at is water retention in soil and how water moves through soil. Because these systems are so wildly complex and the hubris involved in trying to rep, they're just going back to the basics and really doing kind of some interesting experiments on um, the kind of black box of how groundwater travels, you know, in especially in an arid region. But, you know, kind of starting over and trying to reduce the amount of influencing factors. Well, and it's great because this is the last you could say, although maybe there's you could also argue the other side. But this is kind of the last of the climate trons, which are these very large mm. closed systems um, that were built uh, from from roughly World War Two to roughly Biosphere Two. So, you know, for about 50 years, you had people building these giant computerized systems with plants and various kinds of sensors to understand not just one plant at a time in like a molecular biology lab in a very clean lab, but, but it's, but still a controlled way. So you could have a bunch of plants, whatever kind, you know, some of this was for like improving tomato varietals all the way to bias for two, where you're looking at whole ecosystems. So it's mm -hmm. very different, but, but still the idea is, well, it's basically one big machine and we're kind of going to put an input algorithm and we'll get a, some kind of output that will tell us something of use. And, and to your point, um, it's been taken over by, definitely real scientists for, for sort of very much more understandable research on climate. But that initial, you know, late eighties, early nineties, uh, <laughs> mocked by polish revision is so, it's so enticing because I think it's so vague. And, and I think to bridge to space, I mean, it, yeah. I think you're right that 
for, for many of those people, they're driven by um, not any real single scientific goal, but by this much more nebulous idea of like, could I retreat from a broken biosphere one or make a better biosphere two? Or, you know, there's some relationship between inside and outside there. But, but at the end of the right. day, it boils down to, yeah, let's move to, to Mars. Uh, yeah. And I'll play another clip from John because I was asking him, you know, um, why farming in Mars or why farming on space, you know, reproducing reproducing the agricultural system as opposed to providing foodstuffs, like kind of trying to get some insight on that choice. And so here's what he had to say. Think about traveling to the moon or Mars. There's a general consensus that growing and having sort of a fresh leafy green meal is extremely important for one psyche. And, you know, sure, we can survive on freeze dried food. They can ship everything there. But the appeal, the, the desire, uh, the, the sort of physical pleasure in having that leafy green meal, you know, in some accounts is, you know, you can't sort of quantify how valuable that is to a person's ability to continue to deal with, with the harshness, the, the, the confinedness of the space that we're going to be in when we actually travel into space. That, that social and psychological well-being. I mean, that's why, you know, again, the early planners for New York felt it was extremely important to have Central Park, to have a place that people could go and have some semblance of wilderness, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there there's countless books on sort of the importance of having those types of spaces. And I think that same type of psychological well-being applies for us to being able to have you know, a fresh green meal as part of that if we're living in these extremely stressful and confined environments. And, you know, that can be the Arctic, that could be a remote desert somewhere, or that could be on the moon or Mars. Could also maybe just be future cities impacted by (laughs) climate change. But isn't it interesting that he equates a leafy green salad to this sort of uh, you know, Thoreau, John Muir version of pristine wilderness that we need that for our psyche. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it could also be um, cities today. Yeah. So um, I, I think there is an essential confusion in this attempt to to find this, this pure dichotomy between, um, you know, town and woods mm-hmm. um, and not recognize that town always meant the farm part too uh, and that we've radically reduced anything wild. I mean, yeah, Central Park is a simulacrum. I mean, it's an early one and it's big and nice and rich people maintain it, but it's a simulacrum. <laughs> it's not, it's not wild in that, in some sort of sense where it's going to deal offset, you know, the carbon emissions that the sort of, uh, um, the, the farmscape that, that keeps 8 million to 20 million people in, in the Metro New York area alive. Right. So, um, in, in that sense, it's not just a band aid; it's less than that. It's, it's a token or something. And I think it's a uh, symbol. Yeah. yeah. And, and the idea of the veggie program at NASA. So in the ISS, they grow, um, you know, some romaine, uh, romaine lettuce, some Chinese cabbage, some hmm. cherry tomatoes. Um, it started with just one head of romaine lettuce and it, it was a lot of work to figure out how to do that because for one, plants didn't evolve in microgravity. So they've, they've done lots of experiments for years on plants in space, but to get a production system, something that from a, um, you know, indoor agriculture, um, standpoint, you know, you could reliably use over and over to grow people actual salad greens. Um, just one salad was, was took years of work that they, they do it now. Um, and they do it for that reason. They, they talk a lot about psychology also, of course, scientific value. Um, but, but the benefit of just seeing that plant growing, you know, is great. 
Um, but it, it, it doesn't supply enough food for everyone. And, and the scales just really still don't make sense. So they've done mm. a trial. The European Space Agency did one called Eden ISS, where they grew a shipping mm. container in, the, in Antarctica full of plants. And this was meant to be really? the next two production systems. So a smaller one and a much bigger one for outer space, where you would be growing um, not all of the calories, right, back to the biospherians, but just a, a lot of leafy greens. So everyone could reliably get leafy greens. And, wow. and it is difficult and requires a lot of testing. And if you want to be triply redundant, um, it, it's it's definitely one of those things that, that you have to um, think differently about than if you're farming here on earth. But, but that's all to say, all of those systems have at their core this assumption that most of the calories, most of the food, all of those redundancies are going to be, uh, you know, I don't know if it's freeze-dried, but just packaged foods that you're right. setting up. You're not growing them all there. Um, why? Because that kind of you know metabolism has costs associated with it that Earth Biosphere One is <laughs> uniquely uh, capable of providing, and right. that we still have no. We have the faintest, foggiest, tiniest idea of how to keep you know some algae ahead of lettuce alive. The idea that you could grow enough food for 20 people in space is a little is bit wild. bonkers. Yeah. It's just not true. He's and right even now. on the show, I don't know if you've ever watched the expanse, which oh, is yeah. a sci-fi show. They do a whole episode on trophic cascade. You know, they're farming on Ganymede, which is a moon of Jupiter. I can't remember. Um, but they're, they have an indoor farming system. that's incredibly elaborate and is sustaining multiple colonies and people in the asteroid belt and want, they explain, you know, one thing goes wrong and this whole system collapses. There aren't enough redundancies. Like we can't, you know, even in this elaborate complex where they've taken over an entire moon, it's still so hard to yeah. plan for that. And it's not sufficiently complex, whereas Biosphere 1 is <laughs> extremely complex. But part of that is that, you know, it may be self-correcting in some way. And this gets into debates about the the so-called Gaia hypothesis and the work right. of James Lovelock and Lynn Margulis. But one of the questions is, um, you know, are self-corrections good or bad for humans? And of course, the Republican climate denial argument is, oh, well, it's all eventually good for humans. It means it opens up trade through the Arctic Ocean and uh, actually more farmland comes under production because it's warmer. But we know that's just complete nonsense. None yeah. of the data backs that up at all. <laughs> and where the data backs up is that, oh my God, it's, it's extremely scary. And for example, when plants get too hot, they don't store nutrients for humans that, that humans want as well. They do other things metabolically. So as it gets hotter and there's more carbon, yes, more plants can grow in more places in theory, but the plants that are growing cannot sustain us as well. So They're we need more of them to eat. Wow, so they're not as nutritionally dense. Exactly. Nutritional wow. density has been dropping since mid-century precipitously. Hmm. So that's one of these effects you don't – I don't think you hear talked about in the news maybe just because it's complicated. I'm actually not sure why it's not talked about more. But I think um, back to this whole you know, biosphere one, biosphere two thing, it's like, yeah, you could go to Mars and you could keep people alive. And we have a lot of technology and money. And for some reason, people want to do that. And we can get into kind of yeah. this neocolonial fantasy. but. I think it's still going to be predicated, whether it's NASA or Jeff Bezos, who, which have, I would say have pretty different ideas in some ways about space exploration, on um, you're bringing the calories with you and you're bringing yeah. redundant calories with you. you there's just, uh, you know, the sunlight is weaker on Mars and right. you can't use the soil. So you, you can, <laughs> right now, I mean, I, I write about vertical farming essentially for a living and it's pretty great for growing, you know herbs, microgreens, lettuce, cannabis. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're not going to live off those. You yeah. need uh, all of those other things and the, the numbers don't really work out. So it's, it's interesting um, that fiction, there, there is a kind of missing step. There's a kind of, um, you know, step one, you have the early experiments and step three, you're at the expanse. 
And, uh, and to your point, even the expanse does a great job of contextualizing it and saying, yeah, even if you have a moon that can grow, you know, through vertical farming, enough food of different kinds, yeah. keep hundreds and hundreds, thousands of people, I think alive, um, indefinitely, it can all go wrong like that. Um, right. so I think the hubris involved in some current Mars travel talk is just to me, um, it, it is really like unethical. It's like we, like no one is good enough right now. Right. We're not there, you know. And any utopia vision right now, I think is really shallow and superfluous if it's not dealing with the material reality of the Anthropocene that we live in and kind of being in. And I think we learned some of this over the past two years of really having to have a presence with the chaos going on around that, be it a pandemic, be it uh, protests over racial inequity or climate change, you, there is no escape anymore. And that is not the solution. And I think that, um, you know, kind of reckoning with that material reality of of what we're living with and like the systems that are required to support it. Um, yeah, I mean, the... <laughs> Bezos, I don't know if he will ever come to terms with that. I think he's probably, you know, he's kind of a strange character because it's so hard to figure out why he's doing what he's doing. And a lot of journals have tried. It seems like it stems from a childhood obsession with space. And he really idolizes um, Star Trek, which was kind of one of the original social utopias that just happened to take place in space. But he's kind of obsessed with this idea that we need to go to space because we will run out of resources and we won't be able to keep growing. It's not that we're going to die and the earth will become uninhabitable. He's literally just concerned with growth, which in and of itself is dystopian to me. Yeah. Well, this is a a major question in um, obviously political economics, but especially when you talk about food and agriculture, there's the, you know, historian Warren Belasco, who wrote a really great book called Meals to Come, mm-hmm. wrote another really great book about uh, sort of hippie food movements all the way back to the diggers called um, Appetites for Change. But Meals to Come diagnoses these three essential ways of looking at the relationship between biosphere ones, you know, bio, uh, uh, geo metabolism and, and, and human social reproductive metabolism, you know, where, where are you going to get food from and how do you know if you're going to run out basically of land? And he looks at, uh, you know, Malthusians who say, you know, essentially there's definitely never enough resources and people are always going to fight over them. And that's what orders society, whether it's in the era of, you know, physiocrats and, and, uh, people who are, who are literally looking at land and, and literally counting sheep or whether you're talking today and it's much more about sort of financial speculation and, and, firms moving mines from country to country and, and whatever, <laughs> and, and thinking about polluted waterways and just very distant global effects. The, the point is the same. There's limited resources. We fight over them. But there are these other two strains. And one is, um, you know, he sort of sums it up as better table manners. Well, if everyone could kind of eat, um, you know, less meat, and if we could do X and do Y and use compostable sporks and whatever, that you know, that's a different um, thread. And I think you see that really heavily, especially in, I would say, you know, New York City and sort of progressive circles. That's I think the one that wins out, but there's another one that, that you definitely hear talking to tech startups, which is um, essentially, you know, techno optimism, this idea that, well, the point is that growth is the thing that keeps humans kind of, you know, on the right track, however defined, which in right. this case is defined around, you know, sort of version where like, yeah, capitalism's working as intended. It's all great. Yeah. You break some eggs, some people lose out, but in that viewpoint, you do need constant growth. And so the right. idea of the limits to growth, you know, as the, the club of Rome report, you know, was named, I mean, that, that really is anathema. I mean, the idea that we should have some sort of steady state economy at all um, and figure out how to grow food given that steady state um, is just the exact opposite of, of, as you point out, like the kind of drive for constant growth that gets you to be the world's richest man, you yeah. know? And, and I think, um, 
you know, at, at some point at the end of the day, um, cytopias do have to reckon with those. So if you're doing a utopia organized around food or you're thinking about food in this way where you want to change society to, to, to orient differently around food production and distribution, um, you have to reckon with some of these essential questions that people have reckoned with for a long time. And now, yes, m- more of us, I think, are more well-versed in having these discussions. Are there enough resources? How, what what, what is, counts as a resource for whom, to your point? Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, whether whether you're kind of focused on better table, table manners, um, you know, better techno fixes, making more resources sort of ex nihilo in a way, um, or yeah, just like stabbing the other dude and taking his food, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I love that appro- approach. That might be my chosen one. I mean, it might come down to it, but, uh, Oh boy. That's like, if you ever read the book that, um, Soylent Green was based off of, it's actually just called make room, make room. And it's this wildly overpopulated city where there's literally no room. And everyone on the street says like, make room, make room and yells it down the sidewalk. Um, but you can only eat meat if it's on a black market and people literally do like stab each other to get a steak. And I mean, an old school version of this, right? There's so much, a lot of the authors of these kinds of dystopian visions were men and were very concerned with meat consumption. And there was kind of a xenophobia around uh, Asian societies that were more lentil or vegetarian based as, you know, this horrible way we would never want to have to live, which I think is um, kind of funny to look back on. But yeah, I think progress as an inherently positive value is something we should reconsider. And I I think the cytopias are interesting to look at because they are at least dealing with some material reality mm-hmm. of our lived experience. They're not only a blank slate. Um, and, you know, there there does have to be some kind of reorientation around food, but also around that value of progress and around technology. Yeah, what counts as progress. But I agree with you. There's something still ultimately pragmatic, even about an oil baron, you know, essentially paying hippies to pretend they're on Mars and it not working out. <laughs> it's There's still something, it, it actually happened. You know, we can right. make fun of it. We can watch movies about it. We can go visit and, and, you know, attend science conferences there because it's actually there. Whereas, you know, I think about like speculative architects. I like, like, okay, there's a guy named um, Liam Young, who's a really mm-hmm. amazing, um, I think London based uh, architect, but he, he has a whole project on, okay, what if everyone on earth lived at the density of New York city or London, which are much more sustainable, arguably than this, uh, this whole idea of the single family home driven suburban uh, neighborhood. Um, and that how that's driven by, you know, redlining and racism also by, um, the defense department, you know, and just fears mm. of nuclear apocalypse. Let's spread everything out and not have all the great minds and ever in one place. Um, and, and I think people could debate the numbers there, but I mean, as, in essence, let's take that as a, as a hypothesis. What would that look like? And so he has a whole speculative utopia, you could say, or dystopia, where um, everyone lives essentially in South Carolina. It's like, well, that's <laughs> roughly the landmass. <laughs> Wait, everyone why? Are, Nine billion people live in it, and it's just giant cities. It's it's 30-story oh towers, but it's covering, you know, that's, that's hundreds of square miles. And, and it, you'd have to, because the, the terrain's not going to be even sort of anywhere, the climate is not going to be perfect anywhere. So you pick anywhere, you put everyone on Earth, and you, you leave the rest of the land to heal. And this is coming mm. from, you know, people like James Lovelock, right? Saying, right. well, we need a third of the Earth to just be left alone. Don't do anything on it. Gaia has to rebuild right. in a way. But, I mean, even James Lovelock saying a third, a third, a third. Okay, we can live on a third. We can sort of farm and mine on a third. And then a third, you just have to leave alone, guys. Um, which is so reasonable. I, I love that idea. But at the right. same time, it's politically completely impractical. So obviously right. with speculative, you know, 
uh, designs where everyone on earth moves to sort of the same square, a few hundred mile area. Um, and, and, and just kind of has to work out, okay, well, the food is grown in hinterland beyond that. And it's, everyone's moving around in sort of interesting elevator train systems, or whatever. Um, and, and, you know, partially this is exploring, uh, you know, real conditions where people are very tightly packed and it's not great. It's not a utopia. It's not what Solari was after. Um, and so we can respond to that and ex- explore and try to think of, of solutions. Um, but it's also just like that situation is never going to happen. Whereas the biospherians, made yeah. arguably another little biosphere. It's not perfect, whatever, <laughs> but they, they did it. So I, I agree with you. There's something interesting. That's all to say about um, looking for cytopias in the register of the material as opposed to purely right. speculative. So not Broad Acre City, but um, Arcosanti. Or you could say uh, community gardens in New York City are kind of, you know, these little social worlds mm. built around food production that are kind of amazing and not perfect and not completely closed off, but uh, they have provided some hope for for other people around the world in terms of oh hey you know we could start gardens in in, in anywhere really um, so I don't know that gives me a little tiny bit of bit of hope I gotta say so I love this idea of all of humanity living in South Carolina arbitrarily give me some coastline I'll be there uh, as long as I have a balcony and a tiny plant I could do I could make it work. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's so impractical. It wasn't that long ago that we couldn't even protect federal lands. I was so shocked to find out that whenever they first started to try to close off and protect land to become national parks, the pushback was just astronomical in this country um, and saying that it was against our God-given right to farm and basically civilize, quote unquote, empty land. And so... It's only been, you know, a couple hundred years since that was our reigning mentality. I don't know that we're going to leave a third of the earth to heal. <laughs> well, who is who? Who are we in that scenario? But I, I agree, people with any kind of political power nowadays right. are not interested. Right, but I think um, social changes around food production broadly can be a way to think through Cytopia as opposed to trying to, you know, lean on these techno-utopias being fantasies that really continually leave out the majority of people. And I think um, farming in urban areas, farming in rural areas, that relationship, the complexity of that relationship, the fact that it um, involves a multi-species kind of commons, as the Spurs Artist Collective would call it, does create some of the more necessary values for utopian community and a community being not just human beings. Right, right. Yeah. I think that's really true. And um, I think also there's another difference, I think, between some of these projects and the sort of historiography of them, which is who's doing that tracing and what projects we, we focus on. And so today there's so many we could have talked about. And we want to talk more about this, so we should do more episodes. Yes. It's really where I'm getting at. But I think also it's going beyond us, right? So, I mean, you and I, in some ways, are coming from the sort of bourgeois, like, white artist experience, <laughs> and we're mining that tradition and saying, like, who right. are people who we've heard of who, like, talked about this this topic that's of interest? But I think there's many other traditions, and you can look at um, all kinds of interesting sort of back-to-land movements happening with, um, you know, essentially black farming and indigenous farming just jumped to mind in the United States, but I'm sure around the world, you know, there's all kinds right. of indigeneity that, that is producing, um, to some degree, like it's just been happening, but also there is like also pushback against, you know, the, the failures of in, industrial capitalism. So, um, you know, I will say, I, 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 we were mocking it a little, but Liam Young's project is called Planet City and it's okay. worth, it's a lot, it's a series of cool videos and it's worth seeing. And I don't, I, I don't mean to downplay that it's it's well thought through in terms of some of the tensions there, but uh, but yeah, I agree. That's um, 
even that all of all of these projects there's a kind of universalism to that right, right. 10 billion people move to this one city yeah. um well that's very universalist and kind of you know who, okay no one's going to actually do that so what about projects that are taking into account um traditions uh with some strong social ideas around land stewardship right. essentially right um, right and actually acknowledging the communities that have been land stewards for thousands right. of years because those are if we're going to come close to a cytopia it's going to be those um communities that have been doing this for a long time and taking care of the land it's not going to be some new architectural rendering that's right. gonna really actually get us there or a cool thing in the desert as cool yeah. as it may be whatever it is <laughs> yeah anytime yeah. i hear cool thing in the desert i just cringe now <laughs> i'm there oh right no yeah I cringe. Uh, no, no no it's true thank you for for suggesting it uh we'll come back to this topic yeah and thank you for listening thank you thanks to our brilliant guests Fields theme music is by Sam Tyndall. Our amazing producing engineer at Heritage Radio is Liam Werner. Fields is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio and at Fields Podcast. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.